How you spend your money is, in many ways, how you spend your life. So how can you generate not just a return on your investments, but a return on life? Welcome to the Own Your Wealth Podcast. Whether you're a working professional, a small business owner, or thinking about retirement, listen in as host Jason Deshays of Cook Wealth discusses tax strategy, financial planning, and more to equip you to live life empowered and truly own your wealth. Hello and welcome to Own Your Wealth with Jason Deshays. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hey there, Jason. How are you? You know, I'm doing great, Wendy. It's... uh. Back. It's summer. We're getting off of vacations and still enjoying a couple of weeks before life gets back into its normal swing. But it's been good. It's hot. You but, still have you no know. tan. Well, that means you have to go outside more often. But it's <laughs> uh, yeah, my kids have them. It's one of my kids is got he is like a giant pool junkie and he will be out in the pool and wears like those jammer like kind of speedo swimsuit. OK. And he has this very distinct tan line that like he was changing and it is like golden Brown and then pasty white. Mm -hmm. And it just is bizarre how dark he gets in the summer and his hair gets lighter too. And we were joking about last night, actually this like, okay, we'll see how dark Micah gets before the end of the summer rolls around. So I've got another month before uh, school starts. So we'll see if, uh, we get to that golden brown color again. This oh, year. yes. I like to call it a, uh, you know, a nice uh, bronze god or goddess type situation, right? Yeah, I don't get that. I'm I'm guessing you may not either. Uh, <laughs> no, otherwise, you can. There you go. Okay. <laughs> my my uh, cousins who are redheads tend to end up just burning and getting yes. toast and then freckly. And so they get tanned via freckle. A lot of people, a lot of people burn when they have the red hair. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. uh, we have a guest today who's thinking, is this what the podcast is all about? It's all about red hair, summer vacations and getting tan or not. Uh, (laughs) Well, this is uh, this is Mike Holloway. He's one of the senior wealth advisors on our team. Uh, He doesn't have a problem with red hair uh, right now. It's it's definitely not red. Um, We Mike worked a lot with our clients in terms of helping them navigate their finances. He's one of our internal experts on equity compensation, which happens to be what we're going to talk about today. And just a general good guy. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate y'all having me. Definitely no uh, red hair here, mostly gray. Uh, But (laughs) look forward to talking with you guys. Yeah, I love love talking about equity compensation and all the various different ways we help our clients navigate that. So let's just kind of, you know, people think of compensation and when they get, when they have a job, it's usually like cash money and they think of bonuses and, you know, the benefits they get like health insurance and 401k and those kind of things. But what has become a much more prominent part of camp compensation packages is this equity comp piece. And that's getting shares or whatever the case may be, especially a couple of years ago when we had rups of stock prices. Uh, I, I remember watching a bunch of documentaries on WeWork and how much hmm. that was a equity comp was a part of their, you know, they're all going to become big millionaires pretty quickly. So, you know, it's in the zeitgeist now we're all talking about let's, let's kind of talk about the, what it is, Mike, and then let's get into some details a little bit about like, the kinds that people can usually see in the, the market when they're getting compensated. Yeah. Yeah. And equity compensation is really exactly what it sounds like. Instead of paying you cash, your employer is going to pay you with equity in the company. Um, It's attractive to employers because that's less cash they have to pay out. 
And it's also a lot of times attractive to employees because uh, as the company grows, they get to grow with it. They get to participate in the growth of their company. So if you work somewhere and you really believe in, in what you're doing uh, and are really optimistic about the future of the company, then having an ownership stake, uh, you know, I think just makes your day-to-day job even more enjoyable, makes you even more invested in the success of the company. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the different kinds. Uh, the most common kinds that we see are going to be stock options and restricted stock. Uh, so we'll get into the details a little bit more. Those are going to be the two most common. And we can also talk a little bit more about the difference between you know the most common, you know the equity that you get at these big publicly traded companies versus how equity compensation is navigated for somebody at a small company or a startup and, you know, the various different, you know, kind of pitfalls that, that we see and, and ways we can help people navigate those. Yeah. Cause before it was very much, I, I didn't say isolated, but it was much more common for the large, you know, the Intel's, the, those kind of places where they had stock and it was really easy to measure and everything with the prevalence of all these startup companies and tech companies and pharma companies, where you're getting all this different kind of stuff and it could be big or it could be nothing. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot more complications there and people like getting things that they never thought they would ever get in a job because they didn't think they were working for one of those kind of companies because it wasn't publicly traded. So let's start with the stock options. Um, So what are the kind of the common stock option-y type of arrangements you can expect to see if for equity comp for a publicly traded company? Sure. Yeah. Two most common are going to be incentive stock options and non-qualified stock options. Uh, one of the key differences is that incentive stock options are only available to employees, people on the on the full-time payroll, uh, whereas non-qualified stock options can also be available to you know people that are advising the company, contractors, uh, even vendors um, that they want to give a, you know some sort of ownership interest as they're helping them. That's typically you're going to see that more for companies kind of getting started. Uh, they have an outside party that's helping them get going. They want to incentivize them them to, to help the company grow. Um, those are the two most common types, um, and they are taxed differently. Uh, I know here at, at Cook Wealth, that's something we think a lot about is the tax implications of anything that we're doing. Um, and you know, really, without getting too much into the, into the details on it, biggest difference is that your incentive stock options, depending on how long you hold them, you've got the opportunity for the whole thing to get preferential capital gains tax treatment. Uh, Non-qualified stock options, uh, you're going to pay some ordinary income um, at the time that those options are exercised, and that's going to be subject to FICA payroll tax. Um, So that's kind of the big kind of high level difference from a tax standpoint. And those are by far the two most common types of stock options we see. And those can be pretty different rates, right? Because if you're looking at capital gains rates, we're talking 15, 20, maybe 24%. At a federal level, and if you were ordinary, and we're talking big numbers, you could be up to the thirty-seven percent. So there's a mm-hmm. big difference there, uh, and also, you know, that FICA tax, and and for a lot of, especially if you're an executive type, you're generally higher comp anyway. You may not pay as much in there, but it still starts kind of shaving off the tax, you know, the, the just the mm-hmm. financial benefit of these. Now, when when is it kind of the right time when you have these kind of arrangements to be engaging with? people like us or their accountant or someone, because yeah, I'm imagining a lot of people will get in there. Ah, I got these things, their ISOs or their MISOs or wherever they are. They don't really understand them. At what point should they be at least cognizant of the ins and outs of these? Is it when they get exercised? Is it when they first get them? What do you think? 
Uh, as early as possible. I mean, I'd say when you're granted the options, uh, that's typically when you're granted the options, you're going to get a document from your employer that spells out everything in the plan. It's going to tell you, you know, the grant date, it's going to tell you what your vesting schedule is, uh, the strike price, which just means the set price at which you have to to buy the option or excuse me, to buy the stock. Um, and then typically, you know, how long until they expire? We're almost always 10 years. It's typically going to be a 10 year uh, time frame before that you have to exercise those options. And when you get that document that spells out the ins and outs, uh, that is a great time to engage with an advisor. So that way, you can plan ahead of time. You know, this is where the stock is now. This is when the options are going to be vesting um, and you can plan ahead. And so you'll know when that time comes, usually it's going to have a little bit vesting annually on the same date, depending on where the stock is at that point in time, you'll know, are they in the money? Uh, meaning that the option price is below the current market value, um, at, at which point you might want to consider exercising them and then thinking about what the tax implications are, or are they out of the money? In which case, there's really no action to be taken. Um, you know, you're not going to exercise the option if the option is above the market price, but it does help you plan ahead. So when you get that, when you get that document from your employer that gives you all the details of the of the options, that's a great time to engage with an advisor. So there's no surprises or no scrambling at the last minute um, or worst case, it happens and you don't engage with an advisor until after. And at which point there's really nothing you can do. Whatever Whatever's yeah. happened to your tax situation has happened. You're going to get whether you like it or not. Uh, yeah. And and that's just to kind of like mathematically put there. So in the money, that's like your option price is 10 and the stock is worth 20. That seems like a good time because you're going to get for less than mm -hmm. what it's worth. Vice versa, if it, your option price is $20 a share and it's only worth 10, you may want to throw money at that, but it's probably not advisable to pay double for something that you can get on the open market for half yeah, the price. Yes, yeah. out of the money stock options, you're just going to let them sit. Uh, but if you have one that's that's in the money, that's when you start talking about what are the tax implications and do I want to exercise? Um, that mm -hmm. will depend whether it's a non-qualified stock option or a incentive stock option. Non-qualified stock option, there's an immediate tax impact if you were to exercise that option. You pay ordinary income on the difference between the market price and the option price. Uh, that's not the case with the incentive stock option. So that those are a couple of things that really getting some get some advice from a professional can be very helpful on because they'll be able to tell you, uh, we work with clients on this all the time, um, what kind of option is it? Are there any tax implications to exercising it? If so, what are those tax implications? And then also what's your employer doing? You know, a lot of times, there will be some automatic withholding, but that's not always the case. And mm -hmm. I think that's something we've we've all seen in this in this line of work as well as people that exercise their stock options, get the money, say, hey, this is my money, free and clear, great. And then April comes around, they get ready to file their taxes and realize, oh, actually, you know, 30% of that is not my money and I've already spent it. <laughs> or I've already invested it or I've put it away somewhere else. So that's 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 another thing that we always want to be be very mindful of as well is that you plan ahead and you know what the tax implications are and you've got the money set aside to pay those taxes so you're not scrambling for it in April. When you say so exercise your money, do you mean that they should be doing jumping jacks or push-ups? Push-ups, push-ups, yes. A lot of push-ups. Okay, I just <laughs> clarify, thank you. So let's talk about restricted stock options and we might talk a little bit stock grants because uh, that became sure. more in vogue uh, as stock prices were moving around a lot. So let's talk about restricted stock options. What, what are those and when do you usually see those come into play? Yeah. So RSUs is the most common kind, restricted stock units. Um, there are also, you will sometimes see restricted stock awards. Uh, they're very, very similar. Um, RSUs um, are 
far and away restricted stock units, the most common type of stock grants that we see. Um, and what that is, it's set up similar to an option and that there's typically a, there's going to be a preset vesting schedule. Most commonly we see a three-year vest where it just vests a third, a third, a third over a three-year period. Um, but there is no tax implication to the shares just when they are granted to you. You get the you get the vesting schedule, uh, but unlike with stock options, you don't have nearly as much control over when you do have that taxable event. Because when those shares vest, it's immediately taxable income. It's included on your W two, just like if you were to get a cash a cash bonus. Um, and so those vest over a you know typically a three year three year time period. And the way I really like to look at, at restricted stock is, you know, there is that extra step that you have to do. You have to sell the shares to actually get the cash in your hand, but it is otherwise basically not that different than a cash bonus. Um, other than that, the amount of that bonus is going to change based on the on the, on the price of the stock. So if your company does better, you're going to get a bigger bonus. Company doesn't do as well, you're going to get a smaller bonus. But either way, it goes on your W-2. It's taxed just like a cash bonus would be. So when we talk with clients about restricted stock units, one of the big things is, okay, I got these restricted stock. They, you know, My company withheld 25% and I got the rest of these shares deposited into this brokerage account. What do I do with it? Do I sell the shares? Do I hold on to the shares? Uh, and the way I really like to help frame that discussion for a client is to say, essentially, think of it like it is a cash bonus. And if you got a cash bonus, would you be using that cash bonus to buy company stock? If the answer is yes, then you should probably hold on to those restricted stocks. If the answer is no, then you're probably good. Just go ahead and cash those out, get your hands on the money you've already paid income taxes on. And that that's where the specific situation could be very different. Um, if it is a one-time grant, of restricted stock, then a lot of times you will want to hold on to those because you might not have any other opportunities to get this company stock. And so, okay, so maybe we do hold on to it. You want to participate in the growth of the company. That's a great thing. Uh, but a lot of times you see people that have, they can just get a new grant every year. So every year there's going to be more given to them. So there's, it's really, it's an ongoing thing. It's part of their normal annual compensation. And if that's the case, you're going to benefit from the company doing well, no matter what. So yeah. we typically in that in that in that scenario will advise people to sell the shares shortly after they vest because you've already paid income tax on it and really there's no further tax implications other than whatever little bit of market movement might happen in the couple of days between when they vest and when you actually place the sale but it's going to typically be very minimal. Um, so th that's you know I think when you when you look at restricted stock there's a lot of things to consider but I think the the biggest thing is. Do you have more op do you have more opportunities, whether that's through stock options or whether that's through restricted stock to participate in the growth of your company? And if you do, you've already been taxed on that money. It's already on your W-2. Let's get our hands on the cash and, and see if there's uh, you know, either. It's a great way for clients. It, first thing we always start is always part of the financial plan. And one of the first things we look at, do you have enough cash reserve? And we always kind of look at that as low-hanging fruit. If you are kind of running low on cash, you don't have a proper amount in reserve liquidating those restricted stock mm -hmm. grants is a great way to kind of refill the coffers a little bit, make sure you've got enough, enough cash on hand in an emergency fund. Well, and the other part too, is that you may end up getting, you don't want to get overbalanced, right? We've seen this so many times in the last 20 years where, uh, go back to Enron, everyone had Enron stock in their 401ks and, and they held it. And then when the whole thing blew, they were, they were gone. I mean, all their money was gone. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to be overweighted in any given company because it ends up just creating a risk that anything happens that 
all your eggs are one basket. Um, on one more piece of this on the tax side of things is that they, you got to be careful because, you know, people kind of forget some of this happens because you said it's all in my W-2. I'm good, right? Well, there's also this other form you get. It's called 1099B. So if you sell those shares, you have to then report those sales to the IRS so that the IRS knows that you've already paid the tax on these things. And so it's really important to make sure you report everything. That's probably the most common error I see with people who have stock options that, I'm sorry, that the the stock, restricted stock is that they don't finish, like close the loop and mm-hmm. make sure that they report the stock sales. And they usually end up getting a notice sometime, you know, two years down the road that says, by the way, you owe us a veritable ton of money because all they saw was the how much you sold it for. They didn't know how much you paid for it and how much income you recognized. And then you got to send them information and figure out the tax. So it's really important to make sure if that is a part of your tax life and your financial life is that you make sure it's all on your return so you don't get problems down the road. Oh, yeah. that That's a scary moment too. You know, if you have someone, you get $50,000 of stock that vests in a given year and then you turn around and sell it for 50000 You've already paid your income tax on that 50K. Mm-hmm. You, you don't owe any more taxes, but then they get this 1099 that goes out and it shows we sold 50,000, has a basis of zero. And then the IRS comes knocking on your door and saying, hey, you just sold $50,000 worth of stock and it's all short-term capital gains. They're trying to add $50,000 of income onto your onto your tax return. It, it's, it's all, they, always say, they always take the worst case scenario. So it's all short-term with no <laughs> basis. And, and just as a heads up to our listeners, is there's usually like supplemental schedules. So just like the tip, is that normally you'd see it all in the 1099 with restricted stock. There tends to be this supplementary schedule that shows the adjusted cost basis, which is all the stuff that went through the W-2. So pro tip, make sure you get that as part of your tax filing because that's going to be really critical so you don't overpay on these. Now, Mike, let's say I start a company, I'm the janitor and I get my you know restricted stock because they you can't really pay me a whole lot, but they can give me a bunch of stock. And I work my tail off and I go from the clean toilets to now I'm the COO of the company. And now I'm an executive and I know stuff. There's going to be some issues there. I'm sure it's going to complicate things, right? So tell us a little about as you kind of move your way up in the ranks and you start getting involved in things and what it may not be a C-suite type of person, but you may be Mm -hmm. heavily involved in the operations and know stuff. Mm-hmm. What happens in those cases where you have, where are some dynamics you have to be aware of in that? Situation? Yeah, that, that you're exactly right. That is something we deal with a lot as well. And I know Jason, you and I have you know worked together with a few clients on these types of issues where you don't have to be the CEO of the company for that to happen either. Uh, we have clients that are uh, just board members, you know, on, on sitting on the board of a, of a particular company. And then you're, and oftentimes you are what's considered an insider. Uh, we've all heard of insider trading and, you know, you mentioned Enron earlier, all this other kind of stuff going on. Martha so Stewart, you know, yeah. you know, getting, getting ankle braceleted while she's making delicious, you know, plates of tray uh, food for folks. You don't, you don't want to be that guy. So there's a lot of rules around it for good reason. Um, but if you are considered an insider, what the SEC considers an insider means you have access to what they call material non-public information, which in regular language just means you know something about the company that the public doesn't, and it's important enough that it could change the price of the stock up or down. Doesn't matter if it's good news, bad news. If it's not public, you know it, then you are what's considered an insider. And then the company, if you are considered an insider, is going to restrict when you can actually sell those shares. So you might be sitting on a large amount of shares in your company 
and you might be very concentrated. You might want to sell the shares, but if you're an insider, you don't get full control unless you take the proper steps. You don't get full control over when you can sell those. They'll have specific windows that you can trade in and that's it. So that's where we we use what's called a 10B51 plan. And that's just another one of those, you know, tax code numbers, but really all it means is you are an insider and you have a preset plan for when you're going to sell your shares. And that's going to be based on a, cert a certain price, a certain time, or both. It just means, okay, I have this big lump sum of shares. Um, I'm telling you now at a time when I'm not subject to any you know, non-public information, I'm telling you right now, if the stock hits X price, I want to sell it. Or on every three-month increments, I want to sell X number of shares. You get that plan in place that satisfies the SEC because they said, okay, they, without any, you know, non-public knowledge, they've made the decision ahead of time that they're going to be selling those shares. So it doesn't raise any red flags of, hey, I'm just selling because I know something bad happened and the share price is about to drop. So when you get that plan ahead in place, that satisfies you and your employer from a regulatory standpoint. And then it also helps just from a cash flow planning standpoint, if you are know you're going to be selling a set number of shares every three months or six months or whatever it might be, then that helps you as far as you know when that cash is going to be coming in. And it eliminates the restriction of only being able to sell when the company tells you you can sell. So, Mike, with those, walk me through like two, two questions. One, do you decide if you're an insider or does someone tell you you're an insider? And two when we hear things in the news, because sometimes you'll hear in like CNBC or other places like, oh, so-and-so sold a bunch of shot stock. Is is that what we're hearing about really? Is these prearranged plans when it's like Elon Musk or whoever is doing it? Is that what we're really hearing about? Typically, typically, yes. If, if you are an insider, particularly you know, Elon Musk, the CEO of the company, he's not going to be able to sell those stock just on a whim because he knows something the rest of us don't. Uh, yeah, that, that would obviously be a huge problem. You'll get a lot of trouble for doing that. So most of the time when these executives are trading, it is going to be part of a preset plan. And a lot of companies, uh, particularly some of the ones that we've helped clients with, that is the only way they want their executives to trade. It is a, you have to go through a lot of paperwork and answer a lot of questions to do any trading outside of the plan. So that, that is typically going to be part of a preset plan. And as far as who determines whether you are an insider, that is something that the company is going to determine. Uh, that's not a determination you make on your own. That is the responsibility of the company to tell the SEC, these are the people in my firm that have access to whatever it is, a merger, an acquisition, anything that maybe isn't public yet, they have to report that these are the insiders in my company. And then those are after they've been identified as insider, those are the people that usually will have a preset plan. Um, otherwise, you're totally at the whim of whenever the comp whenever the company says, "Okay, there's a trading window open." And even if you're if you're an insider, they might open a window and still tell you you can't trade. So you really give up a lot of control by by not having a plan in place. And that goes back again to what we talked about earlier with concentration risk and having all your eggs in one basket. Because when you think about one, just from an investment standpoint, you've got a lot of money tied up in one company. Even if you work there and you love the company, there's always individual company risks that you know, diversification mm -hmm. can help you with. Um, and then on top of that, not just the investment standpoint, you also work there. So in addition to a bunch of your investments being tied up in one company, your livelihood 
is tied up in that company. So if you're talking about, you know, the, the money that you are counting on to feed your family and the money you are counting on to save for retirement and use later, all being heavily invested in one company, uh, there's there's a lot of risk. And I think people sometimes can underestimate just how much risk they are taking on by having so much of their current and future livelihood based on the company where they currently work. Because, you know, as we know, people move around, you might not work at that company for that long. So it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that you really have to be have to be mindful of. And it's very easy for these things to just gradually build up over time mm -hmm. and say, ah, I got these options. I got this restricted stock. I know I paid some tax on it. I don't really understand them. I don't want to break anything. So I'm not going to do anything. I'll just let them sit there. And then, you know, you wait four or five years down the road and all of a sudden you're super concentrated and you probably got a huge, if you were to sell it at that point, probably some huge lump sum tax event that's going to bump you into different tax bracket you decide to do it, which again, is just the importance of planning ahead and knowing mm -hmm. when these things are coming due and knowing how much tax you're going to have to pay on them. It's it's also there's a part of it too. There's an emotional connection. Like if you've been in a company for a long time and you've been you've watched it go from this like oh there was ten of us to now there's it's a multi billion dollar enterprise. Is you there's an emotional tie to that money that you have to be careful about. They're like well I'm not going to hang on these shares. I can be thoughtful and make sure it's in my plan because you can see some of these where you got options and and they've got exercise and now you have shares at one really high price and the stock has gone down. It may never come back up to where it was. Mm -hmm. And you got to be okay with maybe having to say, you know, this didn't pan out the way I hoped to. It's time to cash out and move on with my life when I have the ability to do it. And just being not hamstrung. So you don't want the concentration risk and have all your eggs in one basket. You also don't want to be um, emotionally tied to it and jeopardizing your financial plan. As a yeah. And, and we've seen firsthand, you know, here in the, you know, the RTP area with, uh, with Nortel. Uh, that that was something that a lot of folks here locally dealt with as well. You know, that was a company that grew very fast, was doing very well. A lot of people had a lot of stock options in, uh, and there was a heavy emotional attachment to it. Like I've, I've been part of the growth of this company. Look how far we've come. This is great, and you know we we know and have worked with people that were you know kind of left holding the bag when when the company went under, and that that stock has not and never will recover. It won't be anything close to what it was. So, uh, well, it, it the can happen. The people like, uh, and you see it even now, it's a little slightly different arrangement. You, you saw it recently with um, FTX mm -hmm. and people like Tom Brady, who had gotten compensation in the form of crypto tokens and such. And, <laughs> uh, that is worth a big fat zero right now. So it's, uh, yeah, you just have to be mindful of it as being a part of the whole thing. Um, well, and, and, so and another thing, sorry to cut you off, another, another thing too, when you're thinking about uh, specifically the the restricted stock units, you know, if, if your stock is at $10 a share and you get and you get a grant and it vests and it vests at $10 a share, again, you've already paid ordinary income tax on that, on that $10 a share value. If that thing drops to $1 a share, then you're left holding these stocks that are worth a dollar that you've already been fully taxed on at $10. So basically you got 10% of the value of something you've already been fully taxed on. That's like giving you a bonus of $10,000 and saying, Hey, here's your bonus of $10,000, but I'm going to sit it over here. And then five years later, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. So, I mean, that that's something too, that you run the risk of paying income tax on more money that you can ever actually get your hands on. Well, thanks for that illustration, Debbie. Downer. <laughs> that, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, so Mike, there's something I've, I know about you know about, but gets 
put out a lot when people have equity comp is is what is an 83b election like there's a form you have to fill out and they've got to do it real quick or a certain time would you explain to our listeners what the 83b election is and why is it important Yes. So the 83B election is something you see typically with smaller companies, startup companies, or ones that just are expecting a lot of growth in a relatively short amount of time. Um, Whereas typically when you get granted restricted stock, you pay taxes as they vest. So over your standard three-year vesting schedule, you pay a third, a third, a third of your tax liability over those years. 83B election gives you the option to pay all that tax up front. So if you get granted 10, uh, 30,000 shares, they're going to grant, they're going to invest 10,000 a year over the next three years. You could say, no, I want the current value of all 30,000 shares taxed as ordinary income this year. So the hope being that is going to increase dramatically the value of the company over the course of the next three years so that what might be worth $10,000 now could be worth $50,000 in three years, but you pay tax on the lower value at the front end. So you're basically setting your cost basis on the very front end, and you're eating a little bit bigger upfront tax liability with the hope that over the course of the next three years, as the company grows, uh, or if the company goes public, anything like that, that you have already set your basis, you've already paid your tax on a lower valuation. And as a company continues to grow, you can profit, you can take those shares, and you're going to be paying capital gains instead of paying ordinary income. And that process is what, Mike, how you file the actual election? So there's actually not a set form. Uh, we, we have a template that we use. You just send a notification to the IRS stating that I want to make an 83B election based on X number of shares on X date of X company. And then that gets included in your ordinary income for the year. Cool. Well, this was, as always, Mike, a wealth of knowledge and I just really appreciate your insight on this. This is a complicated area and it's becoming more of a common thing in the industry, just in terms of people dealing with it. And so I'm really happy we were able to spend some time focusing on that today. So what's the best way if our listeners go, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. I want to talk to him. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Mike? Yep. So um, always available um, here at the office. Um, You know, we call our general office number uh, 919-784-9100, or you can email me directly, um, mholloway at cookwealth. Um, Or if you go onto our website, cookwealth.com, there's a link right there to my LinkedIn page. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. But either of those ways, uh, LinkedIn, email, calling into the office, either one, always happy to talk about equity compensation. We've been doing it for uh, for a number of years and it's uh, I really enjoy it. Seem to learn, uh, seem to learn a little something new every time you do it with a different company. Well, thank you. So, uh, Jason, how do we get in touch with you via email? What's the um, what's the website? You can go cookwealth.com and there you can get access to all of our team, but also you can find this podcast there and you can listen to old episodes, subscribe and all that great stuff. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Own Your Wealth podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at cookwealth.com or give us a call at 919-784-9100. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Cook Wealth Management Group, LLC, is a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Cook Wealth Management Group, LLC. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.